Tractor Time, the podcast for farmers who care about the earth. Good day. My name is Ryan Slabaugh. I'm your host of Tractor Time Podcast. It is Thursday, August 24th, 2017, and we are recording from the Greeley, Colorado studios. It is just me in the studio with my puppy dog, Franny. So if you hear her sighing or barking today, it's probably just because she's feeling left out of this whole thing. Um, anyway, we know how busy you are. Thank you for listening today. If you are listening, uh, we just want to say thank you again. Uh, you're helping our grow our little podcast with each post and with every download. So uh, please spread the word about Tractor Time and Acres USA. Uh, we know how busy you are again. The dust is flying out there. We live in ag world in Greeley. Uh, we see the trucks moving. We see the haze. Uh, we see the fields getting worked. Uh, we called a farmer this week and he told me that as he prepares for harvest, he's getting his workers set, his equipment ready, his crops healthy, and he barely has time for anything else. Um, just to prove the point, one of our co-workers told us about their kids going off to school this week and they were very concerned, the kids were, because of how much work that left their dad to do on the farm and the ranch. Uh, it's just that time of year. Um, which uh, brings me to this week's podcast. Uh, Mark Shepard, he's a busy guy too, and he's one of our newest authors in the Acres USA family, but his book, Restoration Agriculture, which came out last year, is number one on our bestseller list. Uh, yeah, talk about getting off to a good start. Part of it is the way he definitely explains proven practices about how to repair damaged and broken farmland and something he has experience with doing on his own land. And part of it is the way he advocates for the practices and methods that he has learned and developed. He speaks, he works with farmers around the country, uh, so talking and, and demonstrating these practices in front of our audience is just second nature to him. In this week's podcast, we are featuring his talk from the 2016 EcoAg Annual Conference we held in Omaha, Nebraska last year, where he spoke to a very full hall on his sustainable water practices he used on, on, on his farms. Uh, water management, as you know, is a, a, a very important subject for all farmers, especially in the West where we are. It, it's also the subject of his new book that we will be releasing later this fall, so stay tuned for that. We will get another interview with Mark as we release his book down the line, so this is just a preview for what we will be talking about uh, down the line in another podcast. Uh, the book is under production as we speak. I will let you know more about it when it's ready for purchase. Um, so what follows is Mark's speech last year, which um, ends after a little bit more than an hour. We hope you enjoy his talk uh, and the discussion that occurred between him and the audience last year in Omaha. Uh, thanks again for joining us today. Here is Mark Shepard. How many of you guys were here at Gary Zimmer's talk just prior to this? <laughs> I used to brag that I, I'm the only presenter that could speak as fast as Gary Zimmer, and today over here in front of a couple of witnesses, I gave up. I, I yield. I cannot talk as fast as Gary Zimmer. But I've got about 72 hours worth of material to present in only one hour, so I want to make sure you guys get a broad overview. If you do this right here... Um, it's not set up to get this presentation. You'll get a presentation from a week ago at a biodynamic conference in Santa Fe. 
but what we'll have we'll have it available so that you'll be able to it'll download the uh, the slides right to your phone. Uh, so if you call that phone number there, and then we do webinars. Uh, the Colonomics Action Team. We uh, we have a series. I think it's like eight or ten different. Um, uh, hour-long webinar sessions at different times a day, or constantly going throughout throughout the uh, throughout the week. I cover restoration, uh, agriculture. We're we're doing ecology right now, a college-level course in, on ecology and how it relates to to farming. So, how on earth and why on earth did I design a farm to look like that? Where on earth did I ever get this crazy idea? Um, you see a lot of trees in there. You see a lot of uh, green that's not trees. I was originally turned on by this book called Tree Crops by J. Russell Smith, originally written in 1926. Uh, and in his day, about 50% of all annual crops were fed to livestock. It's worse than that now. It's pushing 80% of grains and legumes. Um, so the vegetarians, when they say that, and vegans, that if we just stop eating meat, we have like um, 10 times the amount of food on this planet. And they're right, absolutely right. Well, Smith said, well, why don't we plant feed for animals on trees that's lightly shading the pastures underneath, and then the animals are grazing the pastures and eating the feed off of trees. Made a lot of sense. So I started thinking about this two-story agriculture of trees over whatever kind of crops that were growing in, uh, on the ground underneath. Later on, I ran into this uh, permaculture. That's my um, first edition hardcover copy of the Permaculture Designer's Manual. Back when, when you take a permaculture course, you get this book. In the back of the book was an index, names and addresses of all the people who had taken a course before. And there was like a couple hundred of them. So that was mind-blowing to have that. In there, I saw this really cool bunch of diagrams that explained that with simple changing our tillage pattern. How many of you guys are row croppers? Okay, don't be shy. Okay. Um, how many of you are on, on fairly flat, shallow ground? It's not, it's not steep cliffs. Okay, so... Uh, just by changing your tillage pattern, you can change the water flow from concentrating down in the valley uh, to spread it out towards the ridge. It's like, well, how can you make water go from the valley to the ridge? It seems counterintuitive, and it kind of is. So then I saw these patterns, and I read about this whole technique called key line design, and they referenced a book called Water for Every Farm by P.A. Yeomans. Um, <laughs> I have it over here. I was going to show it off. Uh, and it shows how to take this landscape and think about wet spots on your farm. Uh, why on earth are the wet spots wet? Where did the water come from? Well, it came from the higher ground. So if you've got, if you've got um, well, we'll get to other pictures of it. If you've got hilly land that 40 acres, for example, gets one inch of rain, the ridges don't get that full inch of rain because the water starts to flow down towards the valley. So you may get a tenth of an inch uh, up on the ridges and 10 inches down in the valley because of the concentrating effect just by the shape of the land. Some of the things that really intrigue me here is with the permaculture design, this is all from the permaculture designer's manual, were these channels and these ponds. Channels for catching any runoff, keeping it out of valleys, moving it to uh, other storages where you can then uh, later on use it for irrigation. Here was the, uh, an example here. If you did one inch of rain on this, all the water concentrates down here. So your wet spots are because the water has not been managed in the, in the uplands, and it's all flowed down to the, to the valley bottom. One of our goals would be to take this one inch of rain, have it hit the property, and stay evenly distributed across that whole property so we have an even one inch of rain over that whole 40 acres. <clears throat> so I sought out this book, and it was in the late 80s, 
early, yeah, late 80s when I started looking for it. It was uh, a small uh, publisher published it. It was from Australia, and it was about agriculture. And it was before the internet, so I had to like write a lot of letters and make a lot of expensive phone calls because when you dialed long distance out of town, it was like three bucks to, to make a phone call. How many of you guys have read this book? How many of you guys have read all the way through that? Of, oh, so we got two of them. Okay, of those two of you who've read all the way through it, how many of you claim to understand it? And every hand goes down. In theory, it was written in English. In theory. I wonder about that. So I read it. I read it through a couple dozen different times. And um, I have been practicing this for 20 years. I've been doing it on other people's farms. And this is not the be-all, end-all answer book. One of the things that really caught my attention, it says, one of the goals is to enhance the swift development of a deep biologically living soil, fertile soil, developing topsoil. Wow. You know, we can, we can develop topsoil to biological fertility and structural stability that is better than ever existed in a natural state. And to me, this, is, this, this was a home run because when I was a little kid, my dad was a biodynamic gardener, so he made lots of compost. He made lots of compost. I made lots of compost because I was the oldest son and I'm responsible. And so I, I would, you know, mix and turn, and then you put it into a wheelbarrow, and you take it out of the garden, you spread it around. There's a couple of little black crumbs on the, on the soil. It's like, how can you build soil, deep, fertile, rich soil? It's impossible. It's too much work. But that intrigued me. It got me thinking. Part of what, what he said is we're not necessarily going to build topsoil by adding more material on the top. We're going to convert the subsoil into topsoil. There's a YouTube video with P.A. Yeomans, uh, where he says, oh, don't worry if, if you don't have any, um, any well-developed topsoil on your farm. Your subsoil has been developing nicely for millions of years. So our job is to fill that subsoil full of roots. Uh, the roots, of course, are going to be feeding all of the soil food web with their exudates, and when they slough off and die, and it's all of those roots and the carbon that they're putting into the soil, that's the bottom of the whole soil food web food chain. I mean, how many different things, toxin here, do we have about carbon? Gabe Brown... If you guys went to his, his talk, you can see what he's done with soil, Gary Zimmer's stuff. Um, the fellow here with the biochar, it's all about the carbon. That's the base of the food, the food web. If we don't have the, the carbon, what is carbon in the economy of nature? It's our energy, right? It's our fuel. It's the fuel in our car, the fuel that warms our house, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> oh, then we have an enemy. Is this drop of water. As soon as that water drops on soil... It's going to uh, mix together. So we have the finest particles, which are the clays, the medium-sized particles, which are the silts and the coarser you know, uh, sands and the gravels. As that water settles down, uh, that one splash happened, you've mixed all that soil thoroughly. Uh, the heaviest particles settle out first, and what settles out last are the fines. Um, anybody seen puddles before that have that smear of fine, fine, fine clay on the top? And what happens when the sun comes out and um, shines on wet clay, you know, pottery. So now you have this crust on the surface that doesn't let air come through. It doesn't let the water go through. You can start to go anaerobic in the soil. Now the next time it does rain, the water goes off even faster than it did before. This, uh, the, the techniques that we'll talk about, just key line design alone uh, on this property uh, in one year, one calendar year, uh, turned into that. Where did the seeds come from? How many of you guys have ever grown a garden or a farm? You ever get weeds? You ever pull weeds? You know, do you ever wind? 
It's like, you know, never. I mean, I swear soil's got to be like two-thirds weed seeds or something. Just by managing the, the water on the surface alone. Well, then this particular farm, what are these patterns all about? And what, what is it trying to accomplish? <clears throat> One of the things, uh, a few years ago, some research came out uh, that, um, I guess it happened up in Vermont, University of Vermont. Uh, researchers did some tests, and they found out that key line design did nothing to improve the soil. I was pretty depressed. It's like, well, come on. I, I know that using these techniques on my farm has really improved the soil. We used to be a red clay farm, and it's not red clay anymore. And we had just recently gotten a, a new wind turbine. And so I'm climbing up the pole. I didn't dare to go up all 100 feet because the thing is like swaying back and forth two feet in either direction. And I looked around at the neighbor's farm, and you can see the soil shining through. It's, it's red. It used to stick to your boots and be huge. But in these fields here, you notice it's not red. But then look, in the farm road, it is red. So we got evidence right here that the red clay, where we've done no farming, active farming, um, is still red. But where we've done active farming here, we've actually even tilled uh, periodically out here. We've got, it's not a big chocolate cake, rich chocolate cake topsoil, but it's, it's, it's definitely a different color. It's changed that much. It's taken 20 years to do it. But I, I argue that uh, that's improved soil over that. Anybody want this stuff? This is still, you can see, it's a real smeary clay. It's a thick, heavy, clay-derived um, topsoil. One of the things about um, increasing our carbon in our soil, because what, what made that black is carbon. The black is the carbon from all these roots over the years. <clears throat> when you have a 1% increase in soil organic matter, it will store an additional 27,000 gallons of water per acre. Um, how many of you guys enjoyed the big Midwestern drought? Was it two years ago or three years ago now? Um, we didn't enjoy it at all. It was uh, not pretty. I think it was May 9th until Christmas. We had zero rain at all. Temperature, high temperature of 116 degrees. That's a bad scene. We got full crop yields. How was that? Well, we have our water managed. We're storing it in the soil. We're storing it in the organic matter. Uh, oh, yeah. Anybody ever tell you? Fred didn't even introduce this. I wrote a book. It's out there on the table. And last year, it ended up winning three literary awards. I kind of scratched my head. It's like, if I tried to do that, I don't know if I could. Um, so evidently, it struck a chord with somebody. How many of you guys got that book? All right. All right, so here we are. We're in the USA. Uh, once upon a time, there was a whole system. Once upon a time, it's still in, in, in existence right now. The USDA came up with a set of practices in order to prevent erosion so the farms don't all wash away. And um, Code 330, right here, explains contour farming. And the basic principle of contour farming is to have a lower edge of every field perfectly on contour. So as the water hits the field, any runoff will slow down, slow down, slow down. It'll just more slowly get to the bottom of, of, of your property. Um, and it, it's for all these different reasons you do it. Reduce transport of sediment, increase water infiltration, because it doesn't matter how well balanced your minerals are. If you don't get any water, you're not going to grow any crops. Who's from, like, Nevada, uh, Nevada, New Mexico, Arizona? Yeah, so you guys know how important water is. Um, without water, you guys don't have anything. So let's, let's manage our water. This is a, a classic... Um, a contour farming system. And contour farming, unfortunately, set up a lot of nuisances for equipment because you get these little point fields and crazy little curves. It's wide at this end, narrow in the middle, wide over here. And if you're going back and forth with a combine or any kind of tillage equipment, it's very inconvenient. 
you know, you're lifting and lowering equipment more often. It's, it's very inefficient. And it doesn't even really solve the problem anyways. It just uh, kind of makes it less bad. And remember, less bad is not good. So now we're going to do some vocabulary, everybody. Take a hand, make a fist, hold it out in front of yourself like this. Your index finger knuckle to your pinky finger knuckle, there's a line between those two points. That's the main ridge of a uh, handscape. On, on that main ridge, there's hills and saddles and hills and saddles, hills and saddles and hills. You may have a deep, well, all right, main ridge, hills and saddles. Two main ridge systems come together, and in the bottom is a main valley. And you notice the line between my knuckles kind of does this zigzag back and forth, this meander. That's where that comes from. You may live in a deep or a steep landscape, like we do in southwest Wisconsin, or you may live in a, in a shallow landscape or a flat landscape. Who thinks that they have flat land? You do not have flat land. It's shaped like this. There are high spots and there are low spots. It's just a lot more shallow than my high spots and low spots. Same principles apply. Um, where your fingers on this main ridge complex represent a primary ridge and then a primary valley. This is all in the yeoman's um, key line um, terminology. Where the primary valley comes up uh, the slope and then stops, it's no longer a crack between your fingers, that spot right there is a key point. And that's where the whole system of key line came from. Because at that key point, we'll show later on, is where you make a reference line that you design everything around that particular reference line. Notice the difference in elevation between the key point on my, between my uh, first and second finger, second and third, third and fourth. They're at different elevations relative to one another. So with a simple system of just uh, shaping the land or even just our tillage pattern, we can make water move anywhere on this uh, handscape by gravity except for up on the hills. So we can have gravity-controlled water management on that whole entire property except for the, the highest points on the hills. You got that? Key point. On a, on a contour map, you'll notice the key point uh, is uh, the valley comes up and the contour uh, interval is wide, wide, wide. All of a sudden, it gets narrow. That's where the key point is. Um, a key line is a contour line uh, drawn from that key point out the valley until the valley opens up. So if you can imagine holding a bread bowl like this, a big old grandma's you know, bread making bowl, but then turn your arms this way and this way. As soon as your arms turn out, that's stop, that's your key line. And so I brought a piece of wire that you can all see, right? I can barely see it, let alone you guys. So I bent it into a big horseshoe. And so here we have this, let me if I stand in front of this, you might be able to see it, I don't know. <laughs> but anyways, if, if you've got if you've got this right here, there's a key point, and you make this contour line right there, that's the key line. That's all that the key line is, is it's a contour line from the key point until that valley starts to open out. Next. Can anybody see a key point here? You see it looking at the land. Bing. How about right there? See that? How about here? What's fascinating about this um, if you read Yeoman's description of a key point, it's this part right here where the water is, is moving down and all of a sudden it starts to level off a little bit. Actually, that's really the first one way up there. And notice how it has collected a little bit more water. There's a little bit more vegetation. 
But that's also kind of issue. Key point, the reason why I put this one here is, is um, Darren Doherty uses this slide, and he uses that as the key point. Well, you could also use that one. Um, which one's right? Who cares, right? What matters is what are your goals, what are you trying to accomplish here? If you live in uh, Arizona, New Mexico, whatever, and you only get five, six inches of rain a year, you might want to be able to collect water off that whole entire hillside, put it in a pond down here, and be able to irrigate this field once or twice during the course of a year. That's a great strategy. Or if you live in a, uh, if you're a tree freak like myself, I might start up here, and then I'd be able to irrigate all these slopes and get these slopes vegetated. Or if you want to graze those slopes, we can get grass growing on those slopes. But what if you end up in a, in a crazy little landscape like so many of our farms here in the USA? Where the heck is the key point on this one? Do any of those really kind of, sort of, maybe possibly fit the definition of, of a key point? So where do we put it? Where do we start our key line? Well, just simply, once again, here's a key point, a contour line right there. Now, what you do with your key line in a, in a simple land form, you find your key point, you put your key line. In the valleys, you cultivate uh, parallel to that line and down the valley. As you do, the geometry naturally makes the lines shift so that uh, subsequent parallels now have this uh, down towards the ridge shape to it. So if you're on, on a shallower, flatter ground, uh, you don't even have to like really disturb the soil surface. You just start tilling in that pattern now, and all of your wheel tracks, all your tillage patterns, it's going to just have these little micro channels that are kind of pushing the water out towards the ridge. Then you go to the lowest practical point on a ridge, and you make a contour line. And that's a, a ridge reference line. Then when you go parallel to that and up the hill, it naturally pitches towards the ridge. So the combination of the valley cultivation, the key line valley cultivation, parallel to the key line and down, and then parallel to the ridge reference and up, you'll have a system that now takes water from the valley, high in the valley, moves it towards the ridge. Um, and when it works, when you have a regular landform, it, it's really, really exciting. It's nifty that it works. Um, all these factors are going to come into play. How steep is the hill are you working on? What kind of soil, clay soil, sandy soil? Uh, your soil permeability, these two are closely related. Your intended use and your equipment. <clears throat> this is actually uh, quite important, the uh, equipment here. Design it around your equipment. Design it around equipment. You want to make this the whole pattern um, convenient and easy to use. Depth type and structure bedrock. Uh, most of you folks on flatter ground shouldn't have to worry about that. Where we live in southwest Wisconsin, we have rather horizontal um, layers of sandstone. And so you see a nice smooth hill. If we soak too much water in at certain places on that hill, the whole hillside just slumps away, especially in um, a lot of alkaline clays. Those of you guys who are up in a higher pH, a lot of alkaline clays are sodic clays. And you can make a ball out of it. You say, oh, this is real good clay. Yeah? And then you put it in a bucket of water, and it just dissolves, fall, you know, falls apart. So you just want to have this in mind before you start moving any dirt around or, or uh, soaking too much water in any particular location. See the key point here? So what we're going to do, what these next lines that you see, if you look at this horseshoe-shaped piece of, oh, watch this. If you do this, right, you can see the horseshoe. But if I tilt it this way, it just looks like a line. So these next lines are actually these, the horseshoe shape. The first one we do 
There's our key line. That's a contour line from the key point, period. We're going to do the key line cultivation pattern. And if all we're just... If all we're doing is cutting hay on this field, we're just going to now reference off of that key line. You go parallel down, and then you go to a ridge, you put your ridge reference, and you go parallel up. And what you've just told, totally changed the hydrology of this whole landform. The water will, anywhere it falls, is going to hit these lines, it'll migrate out to the ridge, and you'll now have water sheeting across the ridge instead of a channel in the valley. Where's the key point here? I use this one also because this is in Darren Doherty's ebook. He says that that's where the key point is. Well, according to the yeoman's definition in his, his book, Water for Every Farm, these are key points. Which one's right? It depends. What are your goals? What are you trying to do here? Um, so he had a comment right here. Well, don't you want to keep the water as high as you can? Well, it depends. And I like, I like the fact that we've got some, you know, Nevada, New Mexico, Arizona folks here, is if we keep it, you know, too high, there's not enough to actually accomplish some kind of growth. So if we were to do, so just hold that thought for a second. We might want to concentrate it somewhere. So it all depends on your goals. Know what you're trying to accomplish first. And know, know your rainfall, your, your annual rainfall. How does it happen? Uh, and then... How do you plan to deliver it somewhere? Where do you plan to store it? These are all part of your, your design process. Instead of just you know, getting a book and, and doing this key line pattern and just you know, do, following it dogmatically, think about what you're doing and what you're trying to accomplish. If we were to take that system right here and just do the key line cultivation pattern, now we've got this crazy pattern all over the hillside uh, that I don't care if you're using a donkey. Reginaldo's using a donkey to... to you know, do as agriculture. That's a pain in the donkey. That's a real nuisance, a real nuisance to do that. So that's not a helpful pattern. It works. It will move water towards the ridges, but it's not helpful. This is uh, more like a classic uh, key liners um, uh, system in a drier environment. All the water from the ridges here is going to flow down, hit this channel. Um, they call them diversion drains in uh, water for every farm store it behind a dam, and you can have a pipe going through here. Well, then below it, you have a channel that's perfectly horizontal. It's perfectly on contour. So what you can do is you uh, open up this pipe here, and it fills this channel there, and it spreads out, and then you sheet irrigate uh, below. Parallel to it down below in the valley. One of the things that you can do is use a little, a little curtain or a flag and put it across that channel where this perfectly horizontal one right here. So you can block this off and you block that off. So you water this zone here. Then you pull, the, pull up that plastic sheet and you put it over here and you water that zone there. So that works. That's right out of, right out of the Keyliner Designer's um, Water for Every Farm book. It's a great, it's a great design. <clears throat> um, but once again, that's not the be-all and end-all. Which one, which one of those patterns is right? Which is right, this or this? They're both falling to directions out of water for every farm. Both will work in a certain context. Maybe it accomplishes your goals. But what do you really want to do with the water? And what I've really kind of glommed onto is right in here is a principal consideration is that results should be two or more intercorrect connected storages, ponds, that overflow from the highest dam to the next one, to the next one, to the next one, to the next one. And so we go through all this stuff about the key point, the key line, parallel down, the ridge reference, parallel up. And in the end, what he says 
if it, if it doesn't work, what does he say? If on occasion the site do not quite conform to the pattern, then a little adjusting. He's saying, wing it. He writes this whole huge book that, you know, of all the people who've read it, only two went all the way through, and neither of you understood what's going on, but he's just saying, wing it. So, okay, how do we wing it to accomplish our objectives and not get in trouble? This is out of the Permaculture Designer's Manual, and, and what I claim, I wrote about it in my book, is that there's a sweet spot somewhere. Every property has a sweet spot where you can find this line that will manage the most water on your property uh, from a single line. It can totally change the hydrology. I call it uh, the master line because now that's like the, ma it's not the key line, which is this. That's kind of key for designing certain ways. But the master line is now this master pattern that we're going to lay on our landscape. And if you look at the Permaculture Designer's Manual, um, this line right here, this channel, is taking water in this direction. It's going downhill, downhill, goes into this pond. This pond fills up. It goes downhill, goes over here. This fills up, it goes downhill, and it fills up. That, um, according to the terminology I'm using, that's the master line. That changed everything on that property. This water used to go over there. This water used to come down here. It all used to go somewhere else, and now it's all slowly moving over there. It has more time to spread out, soak in, uh, and store in ponds. So we'll end up with a system like this where the water goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And maybe it eventually reaches something down here in a, in a larger storage, and then we can just pump it right back up to the top with a, with a windmill. And, and it's... it's <laughs> How many of you guys have ever had mashed potatoes and you pour gravy in the mashed potatoes? One of my goals with water on my farm is not one single drop of gravy leaves the potatoes. And you make all these channels all over the place and it stays on the potatoes. If you get it off the plate, you're in real trouble, okay? But keep it on the potatoes. This is one version of using the same landform. I'm using the same landform over and over and over again so you guys get the flexibility of thinking of how do we want to move the water on a farm? Where do we want to put it? Where do we want to store it? How do we want to uh, spread it out? And this is just a cascading series of ponds. At each key point has a, a pond to it with a channel connecting it. And then here, this one's perfectly level. It sheets off, gets picked up by this, moves across here. Then it sheets off and it fills that pond at the bottom. That's perfectly acceptable if that's what, what you want to do on your, on your uh, farm. Now, USDA has a, another code, and those of you who traveled in from the east anyways have seen a lot of these. Um, go back. Um, terraces. If you uh, combine your contour farming with terraces, then you'll prevent most erosion, and you'll get water to soak in. Uh, how many of you guys have seen lots of the terraces around here in, in this area? What, what's unfortunate about those is they use the terraces to bring water to a particular location so they can put it in a drain and make it go away. Well, that's not really all that helpful in a drought because you've now dried your soil out extra well, safely. And so uh, a terrace, according to the USDA, is an earth embankment or a combination of a ridge and a channel constructed across a field slope. How many of you guys have had any kind of permaculture design training before? Some, wow, cool. Permacultures uh, like to talk about swales, you know, a ditch and a mound. I don't call, I care if you call them swales, if you call them key line channels, irrigation channels, diversion drains, or terraces. All they're doing is going to make a channel and a mound. Someone was asking me earlier, do you have to have that mound when you make the channel? 
It's like, no, but where do you put the dirt that was in the ground when you made the channel? So I just put it right next to it, and now I've got a ditch and a mound. But you don't need it. This is uh, interesting. This is one of these cascading ponds type systems. Um, the guy is a rotational grazer in a place that grows prickly pear cactus really well. Uh, and the, this pond here has an outlet at this corner that we really can't quite see. It goes out through this channel, around the corner to a pond up here. It fills up, comes around the corner this way, comes over here, and it comes in below this pond to another one, and it fills up, and it goes out. It goes around, and it fills up that pond, and then it goes out that way. The water used to go a half a mile, and it's off the property. And now it goes three miles before it leaves the property, and it's stored in any number of ponds. When, when it's going through the land, it has time to soak in, get the grass nice and green. Uh, the animals have plenty of places to, to water. And because they're just grazing here, he doesn't necessarily care if they're parallel or not parallel. This is just a cascading series of, of uh, channels and ponds. We need to use a laser level. It's kind of an important laser level, GPS, an A-frame with a string. Use a tool because although most of us can walk in a fairly straight line and we think we're going level, your eyes are bouncing like this. You're walking in somewhat of a sine wave this way and up and down, and you don't trip and fall except on Friday nights when you've had a few too many. Can you see these orange flags here? Here, 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 here. You see them? Are those going uphill, downhill, or are they perfectly on contour? You really can't tell. I was only going to take three answers, but he, he just said, oh, that's good enough for me. Those are, going, those are actually going downhill at a 1% slope. But it looks like I'm going up because our eye, our eye sees this, our eye sees that. Our eye sees the, you know, the, the tree line, the ridge line, the, the field line. And it kind of averages it out so we don't fall over, but it doesn't really know where level is. Uh, for constructing your channel and your berm, this is a neighbor of mine, Eli, sitting on his one-bottom plow. Um, you can use a horse-drawn implement, uh, a tractor. So this right here is this picture right here, that line with these orange flags and the laser pointer is dying on me here. These flags right there are that line. And it's going downhill at a 1% slope. You see the slope is going this way. And let's say it's a 30 degree angle. Well, then you have a, so it's, let's call it a 45 degree angle. That's 100% slope. Then we put a 1% slope. Your eye sees the difference between the steepness of the hill and this shallow little channel. And it thinks that it looks like it's going uphill. And what's really a, uh, a trip is to have it rain and watch that water flowing uphill. It's like, whoa. You can use a front end loader if you want. Front end loaders and um, excavators like this, uh, I don't like as much simply because if you, if you mark the ground with, with these little survey flags that I conveniently ripped the flag off of, um, you're marking the surface at the proper slope that you want. Uh, and then if you use this or a front-end loader, every time you move that tool, it's, it's a different depth and a different level. Whereas other tools like your, your plow, it's referenced from the bottom of, of the wheel of your vehicle. So if you're driving right along that flagged line, that channel will be the uh, uniform depth. My favorite tool um, uh, is a bulldozer. Here's a line that's been put in. This was done with a two-bottom plow where they, uh, the water would have obviously used to have Flown down, flown, flowed. Let's see, yeah, is it flowed or is it flown? I like flown. Now it spreads out uh, to the dry ridges on this one. 
My favorite tool on larger landscapes is a, a bulldozer with a six-way blade. Six-way, one, two, three, four, five, six. And you can set that blade at a, at a perfect angle, and uh, it'll cut this down. The actual thing that's holding the water is not the pile of dirt. It's the, it's the cut below grade that's what's holding the water. Um, the berm is, is just there because that's where you put the material. You can use, uh, this is called a slope cut uh, on a steeper hill where, uh, where if you were to drive on this afterwards, if your tractor would start to roll over, you can do what's called a terrace cut, which is cut in a different way. Instead of how this driver's on the hill cutting in this way, he could drive cutting in this way. Um, a lot of people say, well, I don't want to have any kind of swales on my property or terraces because it's going to interrupt and interfere with cropping. I'm going to take land out of production. Not if you design it to be a part of your production system. So now you've got the slope going in is based on your, your corn planter, the slope coming out based on your corn planter, the slope going down the hill. All of it can be cropped, the whole 100% of it. Um, this is one of the few projects that I've done in, in, in 20 years of doing this. Um, I've been to t approximately exactly two properties where the key line cultivation pattern worked as it says it will work in the book. Um, what I've always done is I've gone to the key points at a key line, start to go parallel down, and then you check your references with your laser level or whatever tool you're using. And if it doesn't work, then I adjust. And what we'll be seeing afterwards is all the adjustments that we've done. The one adjustment that you will have to do is you will now have to change your farming pattern you're no longer going to follow the same paths that you did before. So like this fence right here, when it comes to water, that fence doesn't exist. Yes, it's unfortunate that you spent money putting a fence in, in, the, in the, the location that it's at, but when it comes to managing this water, instead of having a raging river down here in the rains, we want to spread it out to that ridge and spread it out to this ridge. You'll end up with moister ridges, drier, uh, drier valleys. Uh, this is a... Uh, aerial photo of, of our farm in Wisconsin here, and you can just see how it, 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 um, the water moves towards the ridge, towards the ridge, and we'll see pictures later on. That right here and that here on the ridge of the farm used to be the driest spot on the farm because it's up on the ridge, it's all shallow, rocky, and you know any water that does hit it would kind of go right through it. Now that spot right there is one of the wettest spots on the farm. It's up on the top of the ridge. How did that happen? Because we're taking water from the valley, moving it to the ridge downhill ever so slightly. And we're making all of our rows parallel as we can. You know, we set this up 20 years ago. I literally used an A-frame with a string and a bolt on it to find level. And so it's not as, as precise as it would be if I was using a laser level or, or a GPS or some sort of thing. Um, but it works. It functions perfectly well. I haven't had to redo any of the swales on the, on the farm in 20 years, and they still function. Uh, I did redo one swale um, because Fred wanted to shoot a video. So we came out and I redid a swale. So what we're going to do is these are some of the adaptations that I've learned over 20 years of, of working with a lot of different properties all around the world. How do we get the simplicity of nice parallel fields, even fields for equipment or, you know, or hand tools, um, while still spreading the water out. And so what we'll do, we'll start with a key point. And just for the exercise here, let's start with Darren's key point, because that's where his book says that he should start with the key point. So what I'll do is I'll make a, uh, a water storage structure. 
you need to do a little bit of research into some uh, language and rules. In my state, if we make a pond, a pond is when you make a dam and you elevate water above grade. It needs to be designed by an engineer, installed by a licensed insured contractor, and then you register it with your county, and not, it's now a registered wetland and you know, shall be treated that way ever since. And you have to like probably fence it and keep little kids from drowning. Whereas if I dig a hole in the ground to get some fill to fill in a low spot that's unregulated, I don't need any permits or licenses for that. And the kids are free to come and play in the water and catch frogs. Not drown. Not drown. Well, then instead, instead of um, making a perfectly horizontal line, I'll intentionally pre-pitch that first swale anywhere between uh, slightly downhill from perfectly level to a 1% slope. So the water, when this little hole fills up, it'll automatically start flowing out towards the ridge. This is designed as an as a overflow system. Uh, the one that I showed you where there was that big pond here that we would then store and let it out here and flood irrigate down below, that's designed to capture all the water in that pond and then flood irrigate when you want it or need it. This is designed to only partially fill and then start overflowing constantly. So this is a constant rehydration with every, every rain that's going by instead of a pulsed uh, irrigation. And yet you still have water in these ponds that if you want to or need to irrigate, you can use it. Then we go parallel up and parallel down regardless. We don't care if these, these slopes are going downhill or uphill. We'll adjust those. And you'll see how we'll adjust them. But notice that as these lines uh, came across this way, I'm making a swale line, it crosses this primary valley. If you do this with your finger, you can see that water would leak right down that primary valley anyways. And I don't want to have leaks. And so we'll, uh, we'll cross those primary valleys by making um, what we call a drive-through pond. And all it is is like taking a, a, a pie server on the uphill side and you smooth off, because here's this valley, right? Kind of smooth it off. And then you take that extra material and you go flump and you flip it on the downhill side. So we smooth off the prime, primary valley on the upper side and we fill it in on the lower side. That way the water can uh, fill this, overflow, fill this, overflow, fill this, overflow, fill this. We call it drive-throughs because it's a shallow enough um, uh, slope in that, in that drive-through pond that when the water soaks in or evaporates, you, know, you have a full crop there and you can drive right through with your equipment and it doesn't uh, interrupt your equipment. And this is what a drive-through drive ponds would look like crossing. There's a primary valley here that came down and joined this one, a primary valley that came down here. As we came across with the swale, we removed this material and made this berm thicker and fuller along that way. This is what you know, the USDA says. Instead of leaving this little drive-through pond here to soak in uh, and or evaporate, you put in a drain to drain it all away. Well, I think that's kind of a waste. Um, you do have issues with wetter, uh, wetter fields in wetter years. We've had record rain in Wisconsin in our part of the state this year. We are wet, 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 wet. And it does cause issues with tillage for uh, uh, annual crops and so on. Yes, ma'am. Drive through. Right there. So you drive through. You just drive right through it. Because now what's going to happen is we're going to now, our farming pattern is in parallel to this system that we're setting up. So you can drain it if you want to drain it. If you're, if you're a row cropper and you are concerned about not being able to get in early enough in the season to get your full crop, you've got 10 million acres or whatever the deal is, 
Go ahead and put them in. I didn't tell you to, but if you have to. Um, this is a situation where, like all these terraces you'll see around here, they'll have a drain, and that, that little puddle will drain away. But what I like about this is you can see this scar. This is one year after the system was installed. This material was removed and filled in the crack down here. This was a, this was a primary valley going across that right that way. So we are able to unify the landscape, even though it's all these different crooked nooks and crannies, to simplify the lines, to really simplify the cultivation pattern and still get the water spread out to the ridges. At the ridge now, we do have to discharge that water. Um, and what we've done, if you look at this right here, you see the results of the erosion here. This was where all the water came off the ridge, concentrated in the valley. Now it's a channel flow. It's a, maybe a 10-foot wide channel. By Just by doing this alone, we have just taken a channel and split it into two. So there's that much less water that we're dealing with. Well, then once we take it out to the ridge, it's had time to soak in. Yes, more has been added to it that's fallen on it. Well, now once we get it to the ridge, we'll want to make something that's perfectly level across uh, the ridge. A level sill is another word for it. Or if you have the ability to, you have enough soil, make a pond out there. In, the, uh, in Water for Every Farm and in the Permaculture Designer's Manual, they explain as we're doing these ridge parallels, we make our ridge reference, then go parallel up. Eventually, the, the turns are going to get tighter and tighter, and you won't be able to make this turn with your equipment. And so what you do is you just pull up and start again until it gets too tight. What's neat about these little spaces here, these now provide you with the opportunity to put in a pond, put in a specialty planting, wild, wild pollinator habitat, you know, a high-value crop uh, or something. If you look at your hand, we have that analogous structure on our hand, on our fingers. You look at that little, what's that half-moon thing underneath your fingernail? That's one of those right there. Then all your knuckle lines are, are another example of this feature right there. <clears throat> a level sill can be uh, straight. So this one here is designed. All the water spreads from the valley, comes out this way, and then it sheets across the face here. This also shows another feature. What we, and you can see this one obviously pitches downhill. Every 50 feet on a system of this scale, we'll make a little check dam across it. So when that water falls, it starts to spread out, and then it fills up, and it spreads out, and then it fills up, spreads out, and it fills up, and has more time to soak in. And if you guys have been paying attention, you've been noticing tree guards coupled with these, because we're coupling this with planting trees, which we'll get to. <clears throat> if you want to make a level sill, uh, and you're using like a one-bottom plow, now this is Eli's boys that are removing these sods. Um, at the last tail end... Uh, remove the sods. If this is perfectly level, that, that, that last part of the ditch will fill up and then sheet across the grass. And so they're going to they're drag those somewhere. I don't know. So you had asked a question earlier. Do we need the, the, the berm with it? Well, if you, if you don't have the berm with it and the, the channel is, is pitched at, a, at an angle, the water will move. Then when that, that, that channel is perfectly horizontal, it'll fill up and sheet. Here's a, a curved, like a hot dog-shaped level sill where it will sheet off in this particular direction. Uh, this is that, that wet spot I told you on the ridge of, of my farm. Um, and so you saw it on the aerial photo. I think we'll have another. Yeah, the next one's going to be an aerial photo of it as well. <clears throat> Very gentle slope. This is 1% this is, uh, was how was, we originally set it. And notice here, you see these little channels as well? We'll get to it later on. These are uh, cultivation marks from when we're using a subsoiler because we'll combine this with subsoiling and get that water to soak in well. 
And because we're coupling it with trees, we typically have an alley where we're growing crops, a swale, a berm, and trees. An alley, swale, berm, trees. Now, does, do the trees have to be in the uphill side of the swale, the downhill side of the swale, on the berm or in the bottom of the ditch? It, doesn't, it, it does matter. I was going to say it doesn't matter. No, it depends. If you're in Arizona, New Mexico, you might want to put it in the bottom of the trench because that's where the water's going. And if you make a, like a 10-foot wide on either side down to the bottom, instead of catching rain at this one spot, you're now catching rain from 10 feet over there and 10 feet over there. And let's go to Santa Fe, 15 inches of rain. Now you're getting concentrated. You're getting the equivalent of 150 inches of rain right there. You can grow a lot of things uh, in that spot. Even though you're on 15 inches of rain, it's almost a desert. Well, not if you put swales in place and concentrate that water. <clears throat> uh, other places, if we were to put it in the bottom of the swale, would drown the trees out and it'd just die. This is that spot right there. You can see how it's drowned out uh, the crops right there and it's drowned out the crops right there. You notice this stuff grows extra fast. Saddles. This part right here is a saddle. Go put a little pond up there. Uh, there's been several different projects where I've been to. I said, yeah, let's start by putting a pond up there. And they're like, what? You don't put a pond up the top there. So, well, of course we'll put a pond up the top there. It's a great opportunity for a pond. This is what it would look like on a, uh, on a uh, contour map. Can you, anybody notice the saddle anywhere? And look, they, this, they got, they got a, there's, a, there's a USDA terrace here. And then they put the silly drain. Don't you think you'd probably have better grass growth if you didn't let that water run away? And actually, if we put a pond up here and started spreading water out here, don't you think we'd get better grass up there where there's hardly any grass growing at all? This is an example of one project I did. This is a saddle right here. Um, these channels right here feed the saddle. Uh, then it, actually, no, this one comes in, and that one goes, that one goes out. And that's what it looks like right there. So this one feeds the saddle, fills that pond, and then it goes out across the ridge that way. So there's, there's our exit swales coming out of the saddle pond. It's going to cross over primary valleys. You have its drive-through ponds when you cross the primary valleys, and then a ridge out with a level sill on the end. And then, of course, we've got to fill it with water. So that's where it gets its water from. And you calculate the size of this based on the catchment area of the hills. So if I'm going to put a pond right there between my knuckles, I want to know how much land is on these two knuckles, how much rain falls on it, which tells me the potential of how much you know, water I can actually store there. And then if I design it only to be 25% of the available rain, that means uh, I'll be getting overflow on a regular basis sending that water out to the ridge. And that's what it kind of looks like on, on, a, on a crazy farm aerial photo. All this water concentrates down here, all this water. So that's the key point pond on our farm here. And then it'll move all the way out this swale, comes out across this way, and out to, oh, wow, I wonder why there's extra vegetative growth out there. Hmm. And then this, this spreads out, and it sheets across the ridge that way. Still linear, still easy to use equipment on, most parts. When, when the swale's full, full of water, they are like mini brooks, but they're not steep, so you're not going to get a really fast, erosive flow. Now we couple that with our tree planting, um, so we're doing agroforestry now. This is either alley cropping or silvopasture. We now have extra water to use because we didn't let it run off the farm. We have more water. We can grow more crops. Uh, you can plant with hand tools. This is a tool called Hodad. It's like a big, long dibble bar on the end of an axe handle. That's my oldest son a number of years ago, <laughs> back when he actually would work for Dad. 
<laughs> One of my favorite tools, actually, is just a mechanical tree transplanter. Um, you can put in thousands and thousands a day, 10,000 a day easily with a tree transplanter, right into a, right into a pasture, right into the sod. When you're doing a, a system like this with the trees coupled with the, with the water system, you're going to end up using fewer trees per acre than you would if you were reforesting it because you have such wide alleys in between. I think this one is 150 feet between, uh, between the swales. And they have the tree guards. Put tree guards on to protect against your cattle, your sheep, deer. Uh, if you have goats and you're planting trees, eat the goats. Um, <laughs> If you have existing tree cover, existing tree cover like this, and you, and you open it up underneath to have a silvopasture system so the grass grows, that's a great place for goats because they'll eat the re-sprouts. That's their job. That's what they do. But if you plant trees uh, and you have a nine-foot-tall nuclear-powered electric fence uh, with a mesh that's like the size of a, a window screen, a goat will be able to break out of that fence and go to your trees and find the most expensive one, and it'll be, it'll be gone. They're, they're uncanny that way. So you'll end up, by, by replicating this pattern over and over and over again, you will, you'll end up with uh, uh, something that would look like this. Another thing I do want to point out, I do know a couple people have, have had issues with the systems. Um, Greg Judy set up a system, and one of his biggest complaints is that I can't cross these swales with my equipment. It's like, well, you're not supposed to, for one. You kind of drive along with them. This is the new pattern that you interact with your, your landscape on. And if you want to cross over, make an make a intentional crossover place. Reinforce it with some, some um, uh, what's it, the geotextile, put some gravel on it. Now it's not going to mash down. Your swale still moves the water where you want it to. I like to put my crossovers in the valleys on either side of the pond. So you see that pond there? You can drive on this side or that side, and down here on that side and that side. In the Yeoman's book and most of the Keyline um, talks that I've uh, heard, um, they say, well, put, you put your roads on the ridges because that's the highest, driest land on your farm. Not after you install one of these systems, it's not dry anymore up on my ridge. Plus, if you have a ridge that's shaped like this and goes like that, if you try to drive along our ridge and then off the end, you'll do an ender, front over, front over, back, front over, back. Pardon? So, so, so these wider ones here, this is our flattest ground. This is where we'll be doing produce here. We do produce here. So this is, this is a big, long field. You know, that, that's a 500-foot-long field. This is, this is a, a, what we see here. That's 80 acres, and it's 20 acres, 100 acres total. And so then we access these fields this way. And then one of, one of the things you do, okay, so we made this silly little ditch. Maybe we used a two-bottom plow, one-bottom plow. Um, if it's in the way and inconvenient for you, redo it. What if I have a ditch that's perfectly on contour, okay? It's one foot deep. And it, what happens when, it, when water comes into it? It fills up one foot deep, right? Evenly across. Well, what if I wanted my water to move that way? I just lower the bottom of that by a tenth of an inch, and the water all shifts this way. Let's say two, three years go by, and it's like, I'm not interested in that anymore. I want it to go that way. You just lower the bottom, and it goes that way. They're, they're infinitely adjustable and super easy to work with. Uh, you can allow your access, animals access. Use an electric fence. Just make sure they only get a half an animal in there so they don't stand in there and muck it all up. Don't have them walking on any berms. Uh, there's actually, there was a, a system. I didn't take a picture of it because it was getting dark. It was just before we got into Lincoln here. Somebody had their terraces all out through their field, and the animals were going everywhere. And I've heard complaints, oh, the animals are going to trample it all down to nothing. They weren't. 
the terraces were still in place. They were obviously grazed on, but they weren't, they weren't uh, totally destroyed. You know, th- this, this actually was taken during the year of the big drought, and you look at what the primary ground cover was first, and you now look at the primary ground cover now, uh, they put about, um, about 10% of their land into water features. They're part of a rotational grazing group, and the grazers are like, you, you twits. You need grass, and you took away 10% of your, of your grass? You're insane. You're going to have decreased yields. I don't think so. I think he probably sold hay to those neighbors because they didn't have any feed. Because, I mean, what on earth are they going to eat out here? You want, 10, you want 10% more of this? Or just a little bit less because it looks like that now? Another tool to use with this, recommended in the uh, Yeoman's book, he says use a chisel plow. Don't use an American chisel plow. That's a very destructive piece of equipment. What he's talking about is a subsoiler, a hook that you're dragging the ground, a simple little hook. This is my hook that um, I got from a friend. He wanted to charge me 50 bucks for it. It was a lawn ornament. His grandma or mother had like a planter box and his lobelias and geraniums and all that kind of stuff. So I put it in my van. I took it home, used it, have been using it for, for 20 years now, and I've yet to pay him his 50 bucks. Every time I see him, he says, it's up to $1,200 now, interest. <laughs> Or you can use a yeoman's plow. As your soil gets richer, so do you. These are rather spendy. It'll be about eight grand for a basic yeoman's plow if you want to get one here. Um, or you can go online to kingcutter.com, K-I-N-G-K-U-T-T-E-R, and get one for 250 bucks, a single shank. It takes about 25 horsepower per shank to pull it, they say. All they're doing is gently cutting a slot through any hard pan, uh, letting the water soak in. I actually have a yeoman's plow. If I could talk as fast as Gary Zimmer, I'd tell the story with this because he actually, he actually had possession of it for a while, and I got it back. <clears throat> How am I able to pull a two-shank yeoman's plow with only a 40-horsepower tractor? That's because for 15 years, 20 years, I've been using a single-shank subsoiler, and we've been deepening that topsoil, and it's not a thick, sticky, heavy red clay anymore. And I can, I can pull a two-shank subsoiler now with a 40-horse tractor. So now every time it rains, the water is going to get in these channels and flow following the parallels that we already set up with all of our swales. And so that water just keeps spreading out, spreading out, spreading out. It does not have a chance to escape. It soaks in. And it does do this out on the ridge. So what should I do? Should I drain that? I'm thinking of making a pond. I think I'll make a pond out there. Um, one of the things that is recommended, there's more research being done on this. It's really cool. You go online, you find all kinds of stuff that wasn't just a few years ago. Uh, if, you, if you use a subsoiler on a place that you're just doing annual crops and you don't have this uh, deep perennial roots, you can actually collapse the soil structure if you're using it over time. Um, if you uh, make it too deep too soon, you root the, and then you have a, not enough rain that falls, the water goes below the roots of your, of your, uh, your plants, and now they can't get the water. And so it's, it's recommended, um, and I don't do it anymore. <laughs> it's recommended that you start with shallow cuts, just below, like two to three inches below the, the, pre, the, the existing roots. And then you go another section deeper the next year, and then deeper the next year, and so on. Um, in my situation, when I was pulling the hook, it would only go in this deep into that red clay. And then the next year, it goes a little thicker, a little thicker. Every time I'd pull it up at the end of the row, there'd be clay stuck to it. I'd have to scrape it off. Nowadays, I can just drop that hook right in and bury it all the way up. Wouldn't it be cool, too, to have a tank for your biologicals or whatever you're going to put in there and a seeder so you can drop seed right on that slot? If you want to see daikons grow really huge, put a daikon in one of these slots. 
amazing. If you're going to be putting in a system with a bulldozer, you might as well um, uh, go ahead and have the ripper rip some slots for you right away. This is all that it looks like. Uh, if you're going to couple everything with planting trees, you will want to at least, at least run a subsoiler next to your trees starting the very first year you plant them because you don't want their roots to go out and steal nutrients and moisture from your crop. And that water, that's, that's uh, I have to do the math, I think it's like 1.7 gallons of water per linear foot along, along these slots when a it, when it rain comes. See the little trees? So this mohawk of weeds has trees in it. So we've got the, all these ponds, the swales, the drive-throughs, the ridge exits, uh, coupled with trees, our saddle pond, filling that saddle pond. And then the odd spots as you get to the top of the ridge and the bottom of the field, um, you'll start to uh, put in extra things like a plant, block planting of trees or a maze or a wind turbine or a building. Where it would have started with something like this where the water would all go away, boom, just a, a few years later, you end up with this. That water doesn't stand a chance of escaping. Now, if I can pull this off, i got a really nifty little thing to show you. Um, look at the pattern there, and will it let me get bigger? The pond up here is too large for this catchment area. It only takes water from this area right here, and so it's actually, uh, this swale hasn't been installed yet. It's going to come across this way and move it in to this pond. So this will be drawing off of, you know, uh, 10, 15 acres, whereas this whole ridge here goes around that way, and it sheets and waters uh, that hill that way. So that's how you do it. And you don't have to do it with bulldozers. You do it with shovels and picks on a small scale. You can do it with one-bottom plows. You can do it with horses. You can do it with bulldozers. You could probably do it with nuclear weapons, but I wouldn't recommend it. Any questions? Thank you for listening to another podcast. Uh, this is Ryan Slaybaugh wishing everybody a good week ahead. Uh, if you want to learn more about eco-agriculture, you can visit www.acresusa.com or you can visit www.ecofarmingdaily.com. Uh, please join us and let us know what we can do to help you with your farming as well. Have a good week.